in the final week of um, Louise's holiday, we went to Norfolk on Monday morning. We set off from Skipton in mist. And the mist followed us all the way to Norfolk and remained with us through the vast majority of our week there. So we spent the time potting around bits of Norfolk, peering through the gloom to try and work out what it was like. So I suppose our, our view of Norfolk, in a sense, is tempered by the fact we couldn't see very much, and therefore our understanding of it is limited by the reality of what we were able to see or guess lay beyond the shroud that seemed to exist within 50 metres of us wherever it was we happened to go. And as you think about these things, I suppose you recognise that something of the, the journey of faith is often about peering into the mist because we don't fully understand, we can't fully comprehend and sometimes the mist can seem quite close and dense and thick and other times we may see shafts of light coming through it as we come to those points where something happens that gives us a new insight, a new picture of the reality of God and of his love for us. So when John sat down to compose his thoughts to the early Christians, it's almost like he's trying to recognise this mist and encourage the church to find ways of, of penetrating it so they can see something more of what faith is all about, something more of the reality of God that in the context of the letter would enable them to challenge the, the creeping threat of what was called Gnosticism, which we won't worry about this morning, but in a way, what John does is he offers for us some pictures, some ideas to help us in a way as we seek to remove some of that mist, come closer to God and journey into the future. And there are three key things he says in this particular passage. The first thing he talks about is love. You, know, you go into the church hall after service for a, a coffee or a tea or whatever else. And you're stood there chatting away and somebody comes and bashes your elbow and sends the liquid flying all over the place, over you, over the floor, over the around you. What do you do? What would your reaction be if that happened to you? And would it be different if rather than in church, it happened in some place where you didn't feel the need to be on your best behaviour or whatever it may be. How would you respond to someone making this mess there all over you, in front of you and everything else? John, in a sense, invites us to think about that because he wants us to think about who we are. He says in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. And he talks about Jesus and he talks about the way that we respond. He reminds the fledgling church as he reminds us that Jesus is our great example. And if we follow the life of Jesus, if we try to understand how he related to people, how he embodied love, 
then one of the conclusions that we can come to is that his love was selfless. His love poured out and reached untouched. And that, in a way, is contrasted to the selfish love that often we engage with. Uh, Louise and I watched Evita yesterday, uh, and one of the lines in Evita is where Evita says something about how she wears the jewels round her neck for the people of Argentina. And you sit there thinking, you know, here is someone who's become so obsessed with self, so obsessed with status, that she was, in a sense, identifying herself with something the rest of the population would not see. Jesus, in effect, says to us, here is love that he laid down his life for us. And we need to reflect on what that really means. The more that we can get to the heart of what that sentence is all about, then the clearer we'll be able to see something of the reality of, what God, of how God invites us to be. And then he says, love is seen the way that we respond to our fellow travellers, which takes us back to the beginnings of the biblical story and Cain and Abel, who in a way embody two different worlds. Abel comes with the pick of his flock to God to offer them as a sacrifice, as was the custom of the day. He goes and selects the best possible options, contrasted to Cain, who in a sense picks up something of whatever it is he's grown and brings it without any great thought or consideration. Cain is going through the motions. He's not concerned to bring the best to God. He'll bring just what he can muster. Abel, on the other hand, seemingly has his priorities right, which pleases God and frustrates and annoys his brother because his brother recognises where he's got it wrong and how Abel, in a sense, has shone light into the darkness of Cain's life, which is why I suppose Cain takes the decision to murder his brother. Where hatred takes hold, murder takes place. Not necessarily in taking someone's life, but in a way that people can respond to each other and allow something of what is wrong to fester and grow. The Jesus way, the way of love, is to remember the price that Jesus paid and then to seek to love in a similar way. John gives the example of responding to our fellow travellers in need. This is a message, if you like, internally to the church. It's not about what happens beyond. It's not about social outreach. It's not about caring for the community. It's about, first and foremost, allowing love to be expressed within the community of Christ. Because, of course, if it begins here then it will more ably reach out into the world 
It would be all well and good if we were offering money and support to all manner of things in the town and ignoring those of our community who were in desperate need. What does it mean that Jesus laid down his life for you? And what is your loving response? Are there traces of Cain that we need to obliterate? Do we need to strive to become more like his brother Abel, who was willing to bring the best of all to his God because of God's love for him? So there's love. And then there's something about what the Revised English Bible talks about. Conscience, other versions talk about heart. When did you last tell yourself off? When did you last have a a good chunter at yourself about who you are? When did you last point out your failings to yourself? When did you last indulge in your, uh, what you might call an honest appraisal? John, in a way, is recognizing this is something that we do. And so in verse 20, he says these important words. This is the New International Version. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. If our hearts condemn us. John, I think, is saying that by nature, we are rebellious. It's part of being human. You can see it in all manner and aspects of human life, from the activities of toddlers. Little Peter Lord will be a rebel at occasions. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Um, As in a way, we all live in rebellious phases. We all do those things where we, in a sense, stand out uh, or whatever it may be. We all know that our rebellion is seen most evidently in the times when we fail ourselves and fail our God. But, John reminds us, God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than we are. It reminds us of that line in one of Charles Wesley's hymn, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. We have this hope this thing that we call assurance, this understanding that God responds to us in spite of our frailties and our failings and invites us to recognise that for reasons that we perhaps can't really begin to comprehend, he loves us. The God who made the world, the God who is perfect, who is beyond our vision, beyond our vocabulary. As a psalmist puts it, he is mindful of us and invites us to recognise that and to believe that he offers a means of overcoming who we are So we don't need to be disturbed by our failures, but that we can receive something of the assurance of hope. We sometimes sing, backward never looking till the prize is won, which isn't about ignoring the past. 
It's about not allowing the past to hold us down as we seek to journey forward. As we recognize that when we come before God and make our confession, we talk about the assurance of faith, the belief that what has been is no longer of any account and we can walk away from it and begin to live anew. That where our hearts lack love, God can transform. Where our hearts lack hope, God can inject something to enable us to move forward. Here is John saying to us, love is paramount. And one of the signs of love that we are privileged to receive is this belief that we are forgiven. The belief that we are offered eternity. The belief that there is always hope in the midst of the challenges and difficulties of this world. And then finally, John talks about belief. Now, one of the advantages of the sermons being recorded is that I can sit at home and and listen to other people. And a few weeks ago, I know, at the beginning of the Do You Know Him series, Stephen Dawes stood here at the front and said he was not one for throwing Greek out at congregations. So I'm not going to throw Greek out at you, but tell you that the word here that's translated belief suggests that there is a credibility here. There is something that is real and concrete. I suppose it's a bit like the sort of base of scientific discoveries where scientists come up with ideas, theories, things that they postulate, and then they create experiments in order to prove them so that the world can see that what they're saying has validity and accuracy. That, to me, is the sort of word that's being used here for this word belief. So that when John says, this is is his command, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ, He's inviting us to seek that which offers some credibility to our belief. We can stand here and we can say things that are true, like there's more, if you like, literary evidence for Jesus than there is for Julius Caesar. We can speculate an awful lot, but the, the essence of this belief is that we have listened to what we have been told and we have come to a conclusion that then influences who we are and what we do. It gives impetus to the way that we pray because we believe that Jesus is involved in us, that God is listening to us. It gives impetus to the way that we worship because we believe this is a vitally important thing that we gather here to do. It hopefully gives some impetus to the way that we listen to sermons, to other means of encouraging us on our journey of faith. Because something in here tells us that the story that we have heard is true. And when we respond to it, we will find ourselves in a different place to those who struggle to respond to it. John 
talks about how the mystery is unfolding, how we know these things by the Spirit, which we can't prove in a scientific way, but we can talk about the importance and significance of belief that allows us to make some of the claims that we do. To have a faith that we can explore and explain with the world. Not to talk in terms of, of great theological language, but to say, this is what it says to my heart. This is how it excites my mind. This is how it's seen in the way that I strive to live. John invites us to remember that we are liberated from the stain of evil. We're invited to be children of Abel, to be disciples of Christ, that this is a place where we come to remind ourselves of what love is, to recognise where love lacks in us, and to be equipped to journey forward. I thought it was really sad this week in all the coverage of the death of Dale Winton. But one of the comments he kept coming, coming back at that he'd said was he hadn't really found love in his life. And I thought that was a desperately sad statement for anyone to make and to remind us in a way that the love that we have found in Jesus is something that offers hope and possibility to the world. So there we were in what's known as Sunny Honey, Hunstanton on the Norfolk coast. Monday to Friday, this enveloping mist, and Friday about four o'clock, the mist lifted. The sun shone, and it looked very different from how it had for the rest of the week. So it gave us, in a sense, a sense of what Norfolk's like, but we're still sort of, our view is hindered a bit by the mist that was there wherever it was that we went. But we got a glimpse of something beautiful. And that, in a way, is something I think about our pilgrimage. When we get these glimpses of what is beautiful that inspire and encourage us. And hopefully, when we recognise love, we remember that we are glimpsing something of profound and wondrous beauty. For when we recognise we are receiving love, then we remind ourselves the love that Jesus offers to us in his willingness to lay down his life, to put us first, to participate in the great selfless act so that we can come together and speak of assurance. Our belief in what Jesus has achieved for us, our belief in what that says about eternity, our belief in what that says about our here and now, and encourage ourselves and each other to continue on this great journey and to remind ourselves 
of the priority of love and that where love is, there beauty will inevitably be found. There, the reality of Jesus can touch and encourage us to love each other, to love our world, and most importantly, to love our God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the assurance of faith reminds us that God loves us. And that is part of the good news that should be in our hearts, that should excite our minds, that should empower our fellowship and enable us to be God's people here on earth. Amen.